This is episode number 608 with Jay Shetty. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Joseph Wong said, influence is our inner ability to lift people up to our perspective. I am super excited about our guest today. I got to know Jay Shetty over the last year and just feel a great brotherhood with him and really appreciate the way he thinks, the way he acts, and the way he delivers his message to the world. And for those that don't know who he is, he's a former monk who's known for making wisdom go viral. He's an award-winning life coach, online personality host, and filmmaker. His videos go viral on Facebook. Some of them get 20, 30, 50 million views. He's named in the Forbes 30 Under 30 class of 2017. He's coached millennials all over the world and changed lives on a global scale. Jay went from living as a monk to hosting a digital morning show for the Huffington Post, and he continues to transform the world with his message. And in this interview, we talk about why Jay fell in love with the monk lifestyle, the similarities between monks and athletes to achieving peak performance, also why most of us pretend to be someone else, how Jay grew his social media to millions in just two years, what people aren't understanding about the power of video, and so much more. Love this interview. Again, take a screenshot of this app right now and post this on your Instagram story, on Twitter, with the link lewishouse.com slash 608 to get your friends to listen to this as well. I don't know about you, but when around 3 p.m. hits, I find myself craving the right refreshment to get me through that mid-afternoon slump. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea is full-flavored sweet tea, but without the sugar and the calories. It might take several bottles for you to believe that a delicious sweet tea can really have zero sugar and zero calories. But you know what they say, life is full of surprises. Or in this case, full of flavor. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea. Try it to believe it. For 20% off, off your next 12 pack head to amazon and use promo code 20 pure leaf that's promo code 20 p-u-r-e-l-e-a-f for 20 percent off take your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card it's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases that's the powerful backing of american express learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card Okay, quick math. The less your business depends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep, obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite 
lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash greatness. netsuite.com slash greatness. Again, head to netsuite.com slash greatness. All right, guys, I'm super pumped about this episode. Again, my good friend Jay Shetty is in the house to bring you some powerful wisdom. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the one, the only Jay Shetty. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. We have the living legend, Jay Shetty, in the house. <laughs> Namaste. This, this is the new greeting, Namaste. Lewis. Namaste. Lewis, um, this is the new greeting. This is the new greeting. <laughs> Namaste. The, the School of Greatness. Yes, man. Good to have you here. <laughs> Very excited. You, you came and spoke at my Greatness Mastermind over the weekend, and people were blown away. Thank you, man. Through your wisdom. We talked a lot about viral video and, and social media there, which maybe we'll get into a little bit, but I want to, to talk more about... The things you've learned from pre-monkhood to being a monk <laughs> to now not being a monk. Sure. And when I met you, I didn't know you were a monk. I just saw you as the guy who had 50 to 100 million views of video on Facebook, which I think a lot of people are familiar with you mm -hmm. from Facebook. You make wisdom go viral. You do these great parables. You do these great stories, lessons, insights. But I don't think you really started talking about being a monk until recently. Yeah. So I think people just were like, who is this guy and how is he so insightful? Sure. But then when I met you, I was like, oh, it's, it all makes sense now that you have all this wisdom. And you told me that a lot of your videos just were just notes from your books that you were writing, you know, your journal when you were a monk. Yeah. You would take all these notes down from the lessons you were learning. Absolutely. And now you're just going back and looking at those notes and saying, let me shoot a video about this. Yeah. And it's like, it's 50 million views, so. Yeah, it's crazy. Why did you decide that you wanted to be a monk in the first place, and how old were you when you did that? Absolutely. So the, the story starts with something I've been saying a lot called, you can't be what you can't see. So I didn't grow up wanting to be a monk. <laughs> like <laughs> what did you grow up wanting to be? Yeah, I grew up wanting to be a mix of an art director, like for a big magazine or online company, because I loved design, I loved graphics, I loved video and art when I was growing up. I loved philosophy and I loved economics. Those are like my three favorite subjects, art, design, philosophy, and economics. And I always thought I'd be something boring, like an investment banker, because I often say when you, when you grow up in an Asian or Indian family, and if you have any Asian or Indian followers, they'll agree, I had three options. I could either be a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure, right? Those were like my three options. So that's what I was going to be. I couldn't be any of those, so I was going to be an investment banker or a strategy consultant. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, I was like, I'm rubbish at medicine. <laughs> you know, I'm not very good at law. So I was kind of going down that route because you can't be what you can't see. And growing up as a young Asian person in London, you don't see many people in the media. You don't see many Asians in sport. Mm. You don't see many Asians in anything apart from accountancy, business, medicine, and law. That's, that's literally what you see. And then I was 18. I'm at university, I'm studying my undergraduate, which is in behavioral science. Mm, in London. In London. So I've always been fascinated by why people do what they do. Always fascinated by why we make decisions, why we lie, why people cheat, why people pretend to be someone they're not. Like all those questions always fascinated me, but just from an intellectual point of view. 
rather than helping people unpackage it. So I was studying that. And then at my university, we'd have some of the best entrepreneurs coming to speak every week. In London, right? In yeah. London, in London, at, at Cass Business School. So there's people coming in every single week. And then I found out that the week later, after been watching entrepreneur after entrepreneur, loved hearing from CEOs, their success stories. I was a huge fan of rags to riches stories. Like not the riches because of wealth, but just that whole thing of like people going from nothing to something. Like that fascinated me. So I used to read autobiographies. I thought I hated reading until I was 14, until someone handed me an autobiography. I think I remember reading The Rock's autobiography back then too, because I used to watch wrestling. But anyway, so I'm fascinated by people who go from nothing to something. And then a monk's invited to speak at my university. And I actually get forced along. I'm actually not that interested. I'm like, what's a monk going to teach me? Who cares? Like, never seen a monk in my life. Don't really know what they do. Get forced by one of my mates to come along. I basically have nothing better to do that night. I turn up. I'm hearing this monk speak. And he captivated me like the most beautiful woman in the world, right? I was just completely enthralled and addicted to everything he said. I was hanging off every word. And there was a voice in my head that was just like, who is this guy? And then I find out that he'd given up jobs at Google and Microsoft to become a monk. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, who does that? You know, everyone that I've ever met, that's all they've been chasing. And all the stories that I'd followed in life were people who went from nothing to something. And here was a guy who had something, but had traded it to have nothing, but looked like the happiest person I'd ever met. So it was like the most paradoxical moment of my life, like the most ironic thing that could have happened. Anyway, so I go and speak to him afterwards. I, I loved networking with speakers. I'd always approach people after their speech if I was moved. I went up to him and I just said, you know what, everything you said just resonated with me. And there was one thing that he said that, that stood above everything. And he spoke about this principle about plant trees under whose shade you do not plan to sit. All right, plant trees under whose shade you do not plan to sit. What he meant was selfless service, giving without expecting, using everything you have, doing something for nothing, just being able to give. And for some reason, that 18-year-old me, hearing about selflessness, that word kind of just, I don't know what it was. It was just one of those moments that just, it penetrated through, through every desire I had. And service and selflessness became like my biggest aspiration in like a moment. And I started talking to him. So I started interning with him in India as a monk every summer holidays. Really? So I'd finish so you're my- you a freshman this year when you- I was, Yeah, yeah, basically 18, I, I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's what you call it. When you just started out. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. So after the first year, you had a summer break. Correct. To go to India to be with him for a while, month, two months? Yeah, month or two months. However, so I'd get a summer holiday. I'd spend half of it working at a big corporate firm because I thought that's what I was going to do. And I'd spend the rest of it and Christmas holidays that we get in London, I'd spend it in India, just kind of shadowing him. And I describe it like that. I was literally interning to be a monk where you live like a monk, you practice monk principles, you follow what they do on a daily basis and you get to experience what it's like. Mm. And I'd work at like the big, I'd work at some of these biggest companies in the world and then I'd go to living as a monk, like polar opposites. We'd be out at night drinking, networking after this yeah, yeah. work yeah, yeah, yeah. right? The, the stuff you do, bars, clubs, etc. And then like for the rest of the months, I'm like meditating and spending time with wow. these enlightened beings. And I can honestly say, having tested and experimented both, I fell in love with that lifestyle more. So having everything on that side versus having nothing on that side, 
I, I fell in love with having nothing. Mm. And so it was like a perfect A and B test. You know, it was like the perfect process. So that's- nothing, which, yeah. Yeah, so I always say you can't be what you can't see. I wouldn't have become a monk if I didn't see a monk. That's my journey to why it started. Why did I start to become a monk? Because I got to meet a monk, which exploded the horizons and possibilities of what I could be, first of all. I became a monk because I got fascinated by giving everything you have in the service of others. At a very early age, I just got fascinated by that principle. And the third thing was I fell in love with the lifestyle of a monk more than I did of a modern person. Why did you fall in love with that? I fell in love with it because I got so fixated on the fact that what if you could spend your whole life just helping people? Like what if that's all you did? What if you had to learn, grow, create just to make a difference in people's lives? Yeah. And you didn't need anything back and you didn't want anything back. And the only example I'd seen of that at that age was the monk. So that was the only kind of right. test I had, right? That's the only person I'd experienced. You hadn't met someone who started a nonprofit or something like that? Like- <laughs> I had, I had, but I, I had met people who'd done NGOs and not-for-profits, but I always found that they were still looking for funding. Oh, yeah, sure. And, and I didn't necessarily fall in love with their character. Uh-huh. And I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. That when I was with the monks, I felt completely in love with their character, mm-hmm. the way they behaved, their purity, the way they their- spoke, their purity, yeah. their their whole demeanor was just so attractive. And I was like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. You know, so while everyone else wanted to be other stuff, when I was 18, I wanted to be a monk. Wow. So yeah, but I still, yeah, anyway. How many summers did you spend with him before you said, okay? Three. So throughout the whole of university, I spent three. So every break I spent with him. And then after college? Then after college, that was it. I didn't even go, so I graduated, but I didn't turn up to my graduation ceremony. So my mom's still upset that she doesn't have a picture of me holding the scroll, wearing the hat. I left for India straight away. Why didn't you complete it then? I finished, as in I graduated in the sense of I had my degree. But why didn't you go all the way, see it all the way through? Because I had to, I remember it being delayed till December and we finished in May. And I was just like, I'm going, I'm not waiting till December. I'm not coming back for that. It's meaningless. What does it even mean? And I left, so I literally, that's it. I don't care, I want nothing in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and then I went. Wow. Yeah, so I left, and I was 22 years old, and, and I just left. I just wanted to be there and be with him and be with the other monks. And I saw them doing all this incredible work. It's not like they were just being monks in the way people think. I always talk about how half the day was silence and half the day is service. So the service side is building sustainable villages, building food distribution programs, teaching, you know, helping communities. It wasn't just being, Mm. it was doing as well. Mm. So I loved that aspect of half the day to grow myself and then half the day to give. Yeah. And I was just like, when am I gonna have time to do this if I work a job? Right, right. What's a typical daylight then? What time did you wake up? Yeah. And you were wake up on like a concrete floor with like a little yoga mat type of thing. So Literally, yeah. So we'd sleep on the floor. Mat the floor was wood. It was it was like this, yeah. this this nice wood that you have here. It was decent wood. So <laughs> it was wood. You have it thin yoga mats. So anyone who does yoga knows those thin yoga mats, not the posh ones. And then your sleeping bag, literally. So you get a sleeping bag. Yeah, you get a sleeping bag, right? No pillow just, or no pillow? Most people didn't use their pillows, but my sleeping I had a nice sleeping bag, you know. I was still <laughs> I was still that monk from London. Like everyone could tell, right? It was like <laughs> hey, oh, his sleeping bag looks a bit too premium, but I was like, you know, this is the this is yeah, the least I can do. So I still had the premium sleeping bag. We'd wake up at about 4 a.m. every day, every single day, 4 a.m. So the first week must have been a little rough to like get into the... Well, you know what? The way I remember it is that I was so pumped 
that I'd talked myself into it. Plus I'd been doing it every summer. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't new. It wasn't like I just threw myself in. I'd lived like that for three summers. Yeah. So I was kind of aware of what it was like, but I'd pumped myself so much. I was gonna, I'm gonna be there at 3.30. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wake up earlier than everyone. You know, I was in that. And I've always been like that. I've always been someone who wants to push. And I wanna do a workout before everyone's literally, up. Literally, like I was like, I'm gonna meditate two hours before everyone's awake. <laughs> and so I'm pushing myself to limits that I didn't know and I wanted to test it. I was like, I'm gonna be here for the rest of my life. So, wow. so I was like, I'm gonna be here for the rest of my life. So I'm just gonna do this properly. You know, so I ended up, yeah, waking up at 4 a.m. From 4 to 5.15, you have collective meditation, collective group? prayers, collective chant, yeah, group. Chanting. Chanting. Group chanting. Yeah, group chanting. That must have been very like healing almost at the same time and just like chanting together. And yeah. The, the symphony that you create with the melodies and. We underestimate what it feels like to be in a place where people have meditated for hundreds of thousands of years. Like places take on energies. Mm -hmm. And that place is a place where people have meditated, those two monasteries, people have meditated for like 40 years in that space right. for over four hours a day. So you're like walking into like the most spiritual sacred atmosphere in the world. You only tap into that more. You know, when we go to a place, we know what it feels like when you've been on a stage that Michael Jackson performed at or when you'd been in an arena where, you know, your favorite artist, whatever it is, the analogy that works for you. It was like walking into the arena of the monks, wow. you know, like that, that the legendary monks. Yeah, the legend of meditate, like everything you expect a spiritual atmosphere to contain, mm. you're getting that because it's, it's amazing. So yeah, it was four to 515 is group meditation. Then 5.15 to 7 is private meditation. So that's your personal wow. practice. So that's already three hours since you've been awake, right? Seven o'clock till 7.30 is group meditation, group chanting again. And then 7.30 to 8.30 is a wisdom class on the Vedas. So the Vedas are 5,000 years old, linguistically and philosophically, the oldest books on the planet. And so you're training the Vedas for an hour 7.30 to 8.30. and then 5,000 year old book? Yeah. Wow. It's the oldest book, like, yeah, oldest dated book I've heard of. So yeah, wow. over 5,000 years old. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. It was funny actually, I, I, I was sharing this and I share this all the time, but then I, I'm gonna throw this in there, but I was, when I was at Ty's house, he said this to me. He said that, and I was telling him about the Bhagavad Gita, which is 5,000 years old. And he said to me, 5,000 years, just like you did. And I was just like, yeah, 5,000 years. He goes, if it lasted 5,000 years, that must be a really good book. And it's true, if you think about it, yeah. how many- Keep using it, yeah. Yeah, how many things still matter and change lives today that did 5,000 years ago? Will the Beatles be around in 5,000 years? Will Elvis, will me, will you, you know, will any of this? But the fact that a book has withstood 5,000 years- Pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Anyway, so we do that from 7.30 to 8.30. And then at 8.30 you get breakfast, right? You finally get breakfast and from 8.30 to nine, whatever you eat breakfast. And then for the rest of the day, you'd spend the morning studying the books again on a personal level. You'd do basic things like cleaning, you'd wash your clothes, you'd, you know, all the domestic stuff that you have to do, clean the space you live in. And then usually by lunchtime, everything changed. I'd either be out teaching local communities or we'd be helping build these sustainable villages, food distribution programs, etc. Mm. So the rest of the day was not as planned as the morning. So it, when we now talk about morning routines, when I hear about that, I'm just like, yeah, that's like a monk thing. Like as a monk, you're trained to have an incredible morning routine. Mm -hmm. And then whatever you do in your day, 
will be incredible because you've started off correctly. So it's, it's interesting to see the rise of the morning routine right. as habits and success because as a monk, that's what you're trained in. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's roughly the schedule. And then it changes after 9.30 a.m. And where in India was this? So this is in Mumbai and four hours south of Mumbai. Okay, wow. So, but when you go outside of Mumbai, I'm looking at these beautiful plant things you have here. It's kind of like that, you know? It's just like woodlands, like green. Really? Yeah, like no, no cars, no traffic, no noise, so fresh air. How would you guys commute then or travel to speak or teach or build homes? So we would, we would have cars that, that we would either drive ourselves. I never drove in India. I never would drive in India. It's the scariest experience in the world. People get scared about New York. India is just a different level. Yeah. So I never drove, but they would have drivers, etc., who would drive us around, monks that drive, etc. So the, what's it called, the place you were at? Ashram or yeah, a monastery. Ashram. So a monastery is an ashram. Ashram is just a Sanskrit word for a monastery. So it had like some funding so you guys could rent cars or whatever. Yeah, so, so the funding comes from donors that really believe in the work you're doing. And then that money is used effectively. Again, people say, oh, how do monks drive? How do monks use money? Well, we'd never use it for ourselves. We had two sets of clothes. We didn't have any possessions, but we were using the cars and what we had to create these communities, to create sustainable villages, to, to create change in the world. So again, everything's being utilized for a higher purpose mm. rather than the mentality of, oh, you can't use that. So if we didn't use that, we might be happy, but how are you gonna help the rest of the world? Right. You know, so that's how we were trained. Were you in contact with your family as well during this time or? Yeah, I used to connect with my family because the tradition was taught of like, that again, that balance between detachment and attachment. So it said that, Detachment and attachment are two sides of the same coin, attachment and aversion. So some people just want to be monks or want to have isolation because they want to get away from reality, which is no better than being fully attached. So the Bhagavad Gita says that attachment and aversion are two sides of the same coin. So actually the ideal is the central balance where you're able to talk to your parents, you're able to give them love, you're able to be grateful, but then again, you're, you're still realizing that there's more impact you can have in the world than just making your parents happy. Mm. So it's that perfect dynamic balance between the two. So I'd, keep, I'd speak to my mom and dad every month probably, catch up with them on the phone. If I was in Europe and traveling for what we were trying to do as monks, then I'd come and see them, et cetera, mm. say hello to them. So I wasn't completely detached, but it was always making sure that balance. The way we were trained is monk life should never be an escape from reality. It shouldn't be that you can't do anything else in life and you don't want responsibilities. That's why you become a monk, right? So it was very, it was very much ingrained in us that you're not here because you can't do anything else. You do, you're here because you know this is higher and you can have more of an impact mm. in your life in the world. So, but you're not supposed to be in a relationship or have no. sex as a monk. No, you're so, a celibate monk. So, so no, why do you detach from that then? Yeah, good Why question. Why do you escape from that? So that's to be able to give yourself all the time, focus, and energy on personal growth and development. So we all know this, right? Anyone who's been, and I've been in multiple relationships before I became a monk. We all know this. When you're in a relationship, things slow down because now you're managing two minds. You're now having to give energy to another person. You have to give time to another person. You lose time, energy, and moments to invest in your own growth. So monks traditionally have lived celibate lives so that they can focus on their own growth, so that they're not distracted, they're not falling prey to any, any lust mm -hmm. or engaging in any flirtatious conversations that again brings down Distract the consciousness the mind, and yeah. distracts the mind. You're learning to train your mind like an athlete, 
like so many athletes can't, I mean, maybe, maybe you had this experience too, but I remember reading David Beckham's autobiography many years ago, and he was talking about that, how they were trained not to have sex before big games, mm-hmm. right? No alcohol in the weeks leading up to yeah. big games. I remember him talking about how when all his friends were out partying, he'd have to get to bed on time. Yeah. So it's like you see athletes go to very similar training as monks. Sure. So it's not abnormal. We see it in modern life mm. where people who have to be peak performance, they also use the same measures, yeah. very similar measures to monk life. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host so listen we all know life is full of yada yada like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print and i know you've dealt with yada yada before like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else and yes it is possible to outsmart yada yada like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is all Already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Doesn't personal growth also come from experiencing life and not detaching from it, only yeah. isolating yourself, but also experiencing all the things that could happen in life and growing in that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think The whole thing there is that most of us just throw ourselves into the deep end and then try swim and figure it out. Right. Monk life actually begins at like five years old. Like the training of, monk life is ultimately training in self-actualization and self-awareness. It's meant to start when you're five. The problem is we all went to normal schools that try to put stuff in us rather than take stuff out of us. Crazy. You talk about this. Right, right. Right? Like you were told at school that you weren't very good and you weren't good at English and now you have a New York Times bestseller, right? Yeah. yeah. But no one noticed that potential inside you. No one noticed that, oh, Lewis was really creative. Right. And you're not the only person. There's so many people who feel like that. So the modern schooling system didn't extrapolate your self-actualization, your element and just try to put maths, English, science inside. Mm -hmm. 
So the point is that you're trying to get to a, such a strong foundation that when you interact in the world, you're going with a sense of strength, fuel, energy to make a difference rather than going into the world and then going, oh my God, where am I trying to figure it out? And I find what happens today is that when you don't, we all know this, we, I mean, self-love's become such a big thing now mm-hmm. that when people don't figure out, yeah, it's like a huge trend now. <laughs> but my point is that if you don't start at a place where you have self-awareness, self-actualization, you have figured out what works for you, what your strengths are, how you want to be in an environment, when you walk out there, most of us just pretend to be someone else. Most of us get lost. Most of us get carried away. Yeah. So my point is, strengthen yourself, grow yourself, and then of course interact with the world. So we had that. We were going out to pitch to Forbes Rich List members to fund our philanthropy work, Wow! right? We'd be in these pitch meetings dressed as monks and then be laying bricks the next moment. So you get the perfect balance. At one point you're in this fancy office and the next morning you're laying bricks, you're like digging, you know? So, so it's not that you're not getting both, you are getting both. Just the relationship aspect of a female partner or a male partner, if you're a female monk, is limited because the whole aim is to allow you to just focus on first finding yourself before you try and find the checklist you've been following your whole life. Right. What did you notice about the outside world maybe a year or two years into the flow of your learning, Mm. you know, about yourself and about the wisdom and the philosophy of being a monk? What did you start to notice the most? most common things of when you were just talking to people or just walking down the street and just being aware of what was happening. Absolutely. Actually, I've been quoting the Gita a lot, the Bhagavad Gita, but I'll quote a modern day, I guess somewhat modern day philosopher because I think this encapsulated it perfectly. He said that, this is Cooley, a philosopher, a writer. He said, today I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Right? And I always feel that blows my mind every time I say it. I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. Mm-hmm. So we live in this perception of a perception of ourselves. So we've all seen the movie Inception. Mm-hmm. Imagine you get lost so far into someone's perception and that's your perception. So if I think Lewis thinks Jay's good, then I feel good. But if I think Lewis thinks Jay's not good, then I don't feel good. And we live like that today. If I think someone thinks I'm confident, I feel confident. But if someone thinks, if I think someone thinks I'm not confident, then I don't feel confident. And that's what I noticed when I lived as a monk, that people were so far removed from their own understanding of themselves that they were either lost living a life they didn't want to, lost living up to someone else's expectations, or lost becoming someone to impress someone else. And so people were, so, their, their real identity is almost buried under six feet of multiple identities they've created. And that's what I started to notice. We have a social media identity, we have a LinkedIn identity, we have a Twitter identity, we have a Facebook identity. Then we have an identity we are to our boss. Then we have an identity we are with our Friday night friends. Then we have an identity we are to our Sunday people. And we've just created all of these identities. And if you ask people, who are you? We struggle to answer that question. And so as a monk, you're just taught to dig deeper beyond all those identities and kind of, again, bring out yourself rather than Mm. define yourself. So that was what I noticed. I just started to notice that people had a big lack of self-actualization. They were very disconnected from what they wanted, needed, and understood about themselves. And most people's identities were crafted 
by the reflection in this mirror mm-hmm. of their mom, dad, friends, boss, partner, whatever it may right. be. Right. How do we start to tap into self-realization better? Yeah. How do, we, so, how do we learn that about ourselves? So I think it starts even at a physical level. I'll give a basic example at a physical level. Anyone who's a physical fitness or a health coach will know that different bodies need different food, different sleep, different fluids. Mm-hmm. We don't all need the same thing. Me and you with different body types can't do the same workout. Right. Right? We can't. I would die <laughs> if I tried to lift what you lift. It just wouldn't work. And I would die trying to sleep on the floor. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, but exactly, right? And, that, and that's the point. That our bodies have different tolerances yeah. in different things. That self-awareness at the physical level already. Mm-hmm. So now what I realized by living as a monk is I can't survive for four hours sleep a night. Like I, re- I realized that about my body. When you were a monk. When I was leaving and, and when I kind of came back to my real bed and I was just like, oh, I like this. This is, you know, <laughs> this is good, yeah. right? And I kind of came to that realization that I'm not able to function as effectively as I want to. I could when I was a monk because we meditated so much. That just got you to a higher vibration. Exactly. So now I meditate two hours a day. Then I used to meditate four, six hours a day, plus the collective, plus the environment. All of that helps. So now that I don't have that, I can't. But if I have that, I can. Could have just slept for those four hours and been a better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So the point I'm making is that's physical self-awareness. Mm. We know our limits. We know what we can do. We know what we can't do. We know what are challenges. On a mental level, what's self-awareness? Knowing what type of people I like to be with. Knowing who helps me grow and who drains me. Yeah. That's mental self-awareness. So self-awareness at every level, and then we go into the spiritual consciousness level. That's disconnecting from all these identities and understanding the identity that we are wired for generosity and we're wired to serve. And only in service can we be happy. And that's us on a consciousness level. That's the identity of consciousness. Like water is wet, the sun is heating in light, consciousness is service. Like that's how it fits. Why are we wired for that? We're wired for that because all of us as consciousness have been designed, and we see it since like even kids, like I was, I was giving this example of this beautiful, and you may have seen it, 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 it went viral on Instagram. It was this little girl, probably about two years old, watching a cartoon, and she takes a handkerchief, and the cartoon character's crying, and she goes up to the television, and she tries to wipe it off, right? And it's, it's, it's incredible, because this girl's two years old, and she thinks this cartoon character animal's crying, And she gets a real tissue and tries to wipe it on the TV. Obviously, it doesn't work. And there's another another one that I saw with this statue of this rabbit. And there's like four rabbits. And one rabbit's like falling off the end. And this little boy is trying to push the rabbit up. But it's a stone rabbit. It's just a statue. But he's trying to help it back up. So we see, and there was a great article in Wired about this, about how we're wired for generosity. Our brain is happier in service. Why are we that way? I'm not fully sure. But what I do know from my experience as a monk, or what I can verify, is that we've been created to connect and serve. We've been created to connect and serve. But you don't know why. I can give you my opinion in the Vedic opinion. I I can't tell you why for everyone. The reason is that the main deep or the, the main Vedic reason is, is that we've been created that way because that's our nature and that's what makes us most happy. Because this whole world is almost a school and education system to make us realize that one truth, to make us realize that one truth. And we see 
that when we're serving, when we're doing that, we feel genuine happiness. But when we're trying to gain and greed and power and strength, we, we even feel empty as it slips through our fingers. So the why is because that allows us to connect to our deepest self, the happiest self that we have. And modern studies have shown that. So Michael Norton at Cambridge University, he did a study where they gave people five, 10, $20 to spend on themselves. Have you seen this? Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, and then they spent five, 10, $20 on others. So people spent five, 10, $20 on makeup, Starbucks, and the normal stuff, right? right? That, was the, that was the three, three makeup, Starbucks, and then something else, I can't remember. And then people who spent on other people, they also bought other, the same stuff. Starbucks was still in there, yeah. and they're buying all this stuff. What they found is that when people self-assess their happiness before and after, without knowing about this A-B test, people who spent the money on themselves didn't feel any happier or any less happier. But the people that spent on others felt 10 to 20% happier. Mm. And then he went and tried this out. This was a college in, in the United States. They then went and did it in Africa, they did it all over the world, and the stats and the patterns showed the same. Wow. That we're wired for generosity, we're wired to serve, to make us realize that that's our real nature, that's our greatest self-awareness. Wow. Right? So that's, that's the Vedic opinion, and that's why, I was, that's why you had to probe me to go to why it is. I know why it is, but yeah, yeah. yeah I want to give people an answer that I feel they can connect mm. with. So what was one of the greatest lessons you learned in those three years then? Do you want me to share the one I shared before or share another one? I've got an... Share another one. Yeah, okay, I'll share another one. This is, this is probably my, one of my favorite things. It's because this was what I learned on my first day of monk school. So if you think about what you learned on the first day of school yeah. when you were three or four, if you remember what it was. A, alphabet, B, C, D. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> alphabet, the numbers, right? One to, one to ten, A, B, C. Right, the 26 letters of the alphabet. So I remember my first day of monk school. I've just shaved my head. I'm now wearing robes. I still look like I'm from London, like I can't get away with it. I'm walking around and I notice this monk who's teaching. This monk's 10 years old and he's teaching a group of five-year-old monks, right? And I see him teaching. He looks like an adult. Like, wow. you know, his ability to like teach these five-year-olds and conduct himself and he's got this great aura about him and so I'm kind of eavesdropping on his class I can't obviously go and sit with a bunch of five-year-olds even though I really want to because I'm like I feel like a five-year-old next to that 10-year-old and I went up to him and I said what are you doing and he said oh well we just taught their first class ever and I said oh cool and he said well what did you learn in your first class at school and I said oh well I learned the alphabet and numbers and I said well what did they learn he said do you want to know what they learned on their first day of school I said yeah of course he said, the first thing that we teach them, the first thing you learn at monk school is learning how to breathe. I said, why? He said, because we're taught that the only thing that stays with you from the moment you're born to the moment you die is your breath. All your friends, family, the country you live in, all of that's gonna change. Mm -hmm. The only thing that doesn't change, that stays with you from the moment you're born to the moment you die is your breath. And he said, notice, when you get stressed, what changes? Your breath. When you get angry, what changes? Your breath. When you're sad, what changes? Your breath. When you're happy, what changes? Your breath. Every emotion is experienced with the change of the breath. So he said, when you learn how to navigate and manage your breath, you can actually navigate any situation in life. Mm. 
And I was just blown away. I was just like, wow. And then I remember researching it and noticing how athletes were taught how to breathe, musicians, singers, especially those who play wind instruments who have to reach really high notes. They're all trained how to breathe because they have to use their breath in challenging, stressful, pressure-filled situations. But I was like, so are all of us. You've got to go on stage in front of 10,000 people. You've got to go to a concert. You just lost a deal or a contract. Our breath changes in all those scenarios, yet we don't know how to use our breath to change our life. And so for me, that was a huge learning point where I just thought, wow, that's what you're taught. The priority is on the root of things, not the leaf or the symptoms. And that's the biggest thing about living as a monk. You're not dealing with your challenges at symptomatic level. You're dealing with it at root level. Right? People say, oh, if you're stressed out, just take a stress pill. If you're stressed out, just go to get a massage. If you're stressed out, just just relax, watch Netflix and chill. But all that's doing is pacifying you, escape for that hour, two hours, maybe a week. But going to the root of it and learning how to change your breath means you can manage any situation in life. And that principle, that's an example of the principle which is so much deeper, that always go to the root. It will take longer but it will last longer. Right, right. Right? If you go to the root, it takes longer, but it lasts longer. Mm-hmm. But if you go for the symptom, you get it quick and it never and lasts. It, and it never lasts. And we don't know that. Yeah. So that, that was the deepest principle I learned as a monk. You always go to the root. Cut down the root of that weed in your heart. Mm. Cut down the root of that weed in your mind. Don't just let it grow and kind of water a little bit and snip, snip, cut it a bit. Like let, just really go to the root and just knock it out. You know, just get rid of it. Get a yeah. big axe and cut it down. Wow. Are there any weeds in your life right now? Loads. Uh, in your heart or in your mind? Always. My daily practice is to refine my intention. The biggest weeds that we all get is on our intention. So when I say intention, I mean my current intention is to use everything I've been given, everything that I have in the service of others. So I want to use the following that I have to help people. I wanna use the money that I have to help people. I wanna use the network that I have to help people. Mm -hmm. But every day that intention, which is a beautiful little plant that's growing, gets weeds around it. No, do it for the money, I hear that (laughs) voice, right? Uh, Do it for the fame. Just do it for the fame, do it for the followers, do it for this, all these weeds are like going around my real intention every day, every day. That's a weed. A weed is the intention that you don't want. And the problem is, Sometimes you've let it grow so much, the weed looks like the plant, right? The weed looks like your intention and you start believing it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So for me, my daily practice is going back in, reflecting on what is my voice right now in my head? What am I saying to myself? And I'm hearing, make that deal, it makes a lot of money, do this, do that, do this, more followers, fame, all that stuff, and I'm cutting it down. I'm cutting that weed every day. And you've got to do it every day because the more you're surrounded by that energy, right. the more it's going to keep creeping in like a creeper weed, right? Like I'm just using the plant analogy because <laughs> it, I don't garden at all, right, by the way. Right. Like I have no idea. But What's the intention you set every morning for yourself then? If it's going back to the, the core of what you really want to create, what is that thing you want to create the most? Service? Yeah, service. To help people find their purpose, whatever that may be, and help them help other people find their purpose. I think Mark Zuckerberg said it brilliantly at Harvard. He was saying that finding your purpose isn't enough. You have to help other people find theirs. And I know you're passionate about Mm -hmm. this. Whatever that definition is, 
but it has to lead everyone. So if I, whether I meet a celebrity, an entrepreneur, or whether I meet somebody starting out, I'm always asking them the question, how can you use what you have to make a difference in the life of other people? Yeah. Because if you start there, everything else will work out. But if you're starting from the point of what am I gonna get, then you're always gonna feel disconnected. Mm. And I see that, I see people who live like that and feel pain in their lives every day. I see that. It's not like some conceptual philosophy. We see it. I see people who are only in it for themselves and they feel disconnected, dissatisfied every single day. And then you see the other extreme where people are just trying to give too much more than they even have themselves and they also feel disconnected. Wow. And again, and they have so, nothing at all. And they have nothing at all, right? So we know, again, attachment and aversion, two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So we wanna be in that dynamic balance of growth, but always to give. Yeah. So I always think, how can I go three steps deeper so that I can move three steps forward so I can give three times as much, right? It's all, that's always my mentality. How do I go deeper to go more forward to give more? Yeah. And if I can get those three in action for that reason, see, it's all about the reasoning. You can do anything you like, but it's why are you doing it? Yeah, we know of course. this, right? Yeah. So. so you were in there for a few years, and three, you, yeah. you told yourself you were gonna do this for the rest of your life. I was, high, I really wanted to, <clears throat> genuinely, genuinely from the bottom of my heart, I wanted to. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, one of your mentors, a teacher there at yeah. this ashram, right? Yes. He said, yes. time for you to go. Yes. So what was that conversation like when he said, you're no longer welcome? Yeah. And how did you start to plan for your exit? Yeah, definitely. So I've been there for three years. I've literally traded everything. Been celibate for the first time in my life for that long. It's, you know, for that long ever, like it's huge. Yeah. And then he sits down with me and he says, I think you'll be able to share what you've learned if you leave. You'll be able to share this with everyone if you leave. And I, and I felt like it was his nice way of saying, you're not ready to be a monk, like get out of here. Right. That's how it felt. Range Rover Sport leads by example. Picture this, assertive on-road performance meets commanding all-terrain capability. That's the third-generation Range Rover Sport, which is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet. This vehicle redefines sporting luxury, offering an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Now available in sleek, new stealth pack, Carpathian gray exterior wrapped in satin protective film with black accents and black brake caliper. Inside the Range Rover Sport, advanced cabin technologies like active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. And let's not forget about the award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment system. Enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Wow, that's like a spa day while on the go. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. Like when you're trying to buy tickets for the best seat at your favorite team's big game or when you're hiring for your business and you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. With ZipRecruiter, you can find qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com greatness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. 
And I believe finding the right team member is one of the most important steps in setting up my company for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I am grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help when we want to grow the team fast. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It felt like I'd failed and it felt like he was like breaking up with me. Like I, I equate it to a divorce. It was almost like him saying to me, it's not you, it's me, you know, it's not working out. Like it kind of felt like that. Is this not, the same monk that you, who came to speak at college? No, 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 it was his teacher. Oh, wow. So his teacher, so like a- Even like more a, so. Yeah, even more so, right? Like it wasn't disingenuous on his part. It was just, it was a reality check. It was a reality check that this wasn't gonna last forever. And it was one of the most toughest, humiliating, ego bashing, crushing things that happened. Because here I was thinking I'm gonna be a monk and I'm gonna do this and I've got all these plans. And then all of a sudden, three years on, all your plans have failed. Mm. I've got no money, I've rejected all my corporate job offers and I moved back in my parents five years ago with $25,000 worth of debt from studying, which is a lot less than what you have in the US because UK education's cheaper, but still 25K debt, no work experience for three years. And, and also just, it's not even just no work experience, you've literally been in another world, right? You've been right. in another world. It's right. not just like, oh, I've been on the same planet. You've been disconnected. I forgot who won the World Cup, right? right? I have not read a newspaper. I've kind of kept up to date, but, but not, much. not much, you know? So I moved back in my parents and I'm thinking to myself, what am I gonna do? Like now I'm gonna have to think about paying bills and I'm gonna have to think about, my, my parents aren't well off, so I didn't have anywhere to just, I had their home to hang out in, but it wasn't like, oh yeah, I'll just live off my parents for a bit, I'll figure it out. I was just like, I literally have nothing. Like if I don't figure this out, I'll be sleeping in my bedroom that I grew up in for the rest of my life and yeah. that's it, like that's life. Sure. So it was tough. It was the closest I've ever been to like a very low point because your biggest dreams have just crushed. And I know no one can really understand my dream of becoming a monk, but right. you can equate it to, I don't know, playing in sports. Like I, I know for you it was like that, but whatever it is, music, it was, it was like your biggest dream on the planet just comes crumbling down. And I felt it, it hurt, it really hurt. And it hurt the ego because all my friends or family who I just about convinced that I was becoming a monk, when I was coming back, they were all like, well, I thought you were gonna be a monk. What are you doing? Like, did you fail at that? You know, it was kind of like, you failed at being you a monk. Be, you can't right? even do nothing. Even, <laughs> exactly. You can't even think about nothing. You can't even focus on nothing. So it was like, I was getting a lot of backlash. And I was feeling like the monks, I was like, I, you know, you start judging yourself and you put that mirror onto others. And I was like, oh, the monks are gonna judge me. My friends are gonna judge me. Like, I'm gonna feel so, and I felt alone. I really felt alone because I'd let, I'd let go of a lot to go there. I hadn't talked to my friends for ages. And so anyway, I moved back and I literally, from the day after I left, I just started reading and learning more about what was happening in the world. Started reading, reading about personal development and started reading about the Vedas again, like my, my practice. So I never left my practice, I brought it with me. And I had that moment where I had to decide, I was like, wait a minute, I've been taught how to deal with anxiety, pain, pressure, and everything as a monk. And for the first time in my life, I had to put it into like practice, yeah. practice, but in like acceleration mode. Like I had to put everything I'd learned into practice and everything I'd learned was tested in that moment. Mm. And, and that was hard because I was just like, wow, I really need to now apply everything I've been talking about, teaching, all this kind of stuff. 
And I have been tested, but now this is a real test. Right. Real world. Yeah, real world. It took me like nine months to 12 months to feel like I could go into a normal space again, really? maintain my energy, and still be able to interact without feeling drained or without feeling like I'm in a lower space or without feeling like, what's the point of this? You know, all that kind of stuff. Because that's your mentality. You walk back and you're like, what's the point of this all? You know, it's so meaningless. Yeah. But then having to realize, actually, it's not meaningless because I was trained to realize that everything gets meaning when I give it meaning. So if I see it as meaningless, it is. But if I use it as a service, it can be the most powerful thing in the world. Mm. And it took me like nine to 12 months to be able to adapt that mindset so that I could kind of live with normality again to some degree. Right. Yeah. So when did you realize you wanted to start creating videos? That was much later. So I ended up doing two things when I left. One thing was all my friends who work now at big companies, they were stressed out and hating their lives. And so they started to invite me to speak at their companies like Google and Starbucks and they worked. That's what you learned from being a monk. Yeah, that's it. They were all working at these big brands and they were like, Jay, come teach us what you've learned. Like we're stressed out. Maybe you learn how to meditate. And I was like, oh yeah. This is five years ago when mindfulness and all this stuff was just on the rise. It wasn't huge yet. Like now everyone talks about it. So I kind of had come back just at that moment. Mm. When, good timing. Yeah, good timing, but without any strategy whatsoever. And I actually remember, this is, I know you've got Andy Puddicombe on your wall. I remember finding, about, finding out about Andy Puddicombe when I was still a monk. And, and I always talk about this. I always he said, was there for 10 years or something, 12 yeah, he years. He was a monk for 10 years. And I think when he left and started up Headspace, I remember learning about Headspace when I was a monk. I remember uh -huh. hearing about it. And it was very early days then. Like Monk it, made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and, possible. Yeah, and now I always look back and go, that was my big, I wish I could have invested then. You know? right, right. Like, that's like my thing. Like I was like, I had no money to invest. But it, anyway, it's a brilliant app. But the point being that I kind of came back at that moment in our world where mindfulness, well-being, all these things were coming into the corporate workplace. Mm -hmm. And so all my friends were inviting me. So I started speaking at all these venues. And I'd been speaking while I was a monk. I've been speaking since I was 16. So... That was a very natural part. Teaching was very natural. And I loved it. And people were getting so much out of it. And I was like, wow, like my monk experience is really there to help so many people. And because I'm still living it, I can still give it. And all of a sudden, all of this environment had a meaning and purpose mm, again. Mm. And I started to see what my teacher had said, that you're, you're there to share this with people. Right. But then I saw this barrier that I was hitting that most of the companies that wanted it were corporates. And I saw this rise in technology and I hadn't even joined social media yet. So I avoided Facebook when I was, when I was in university because I thought I was going to be a monk. So I tried to avoid it. Then I never used it when I was a monk. So I never used Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, anything until 2014 when I just had a normal friend page where I didn't do anything right, right. on it. So I joined social media in 2014, 10 years after Facebook's launched. Mm -hmm. So I noticed this rise in technology and I also started thinking I need to understand companies better. So I start reapplying to loads of companies to get my job back to see if I can learn about technology right. because I'm like, I need to get technology. I don't get it enough. So I'm applying to all these companies. I get rejected by the same 30, 40 companies that would have let me walk in three years ago. And finally, one company gives me a job. It's called Accenture. And so I get this break at Accenture. And I join it when I'm like 26, 27. And I'm joining with a bunch of new grads who are 21. Mm -hmm. So I'm like the oldest guy there. And I'm joining and I'm like, I'm just here to learn. Like I keep reminding myself, the intention here is just learn, mm. consume, and you're not gonna be here for a long time. So I start learning about social media technology. So happens they were growing digital and social media at the same time. Yeah. And I just got stuck in self-learning, spent every hour trying to figure it out, had training from their experts, 
And I ended up becoming the top social media influencer in Accenture inside 400,000 people. Just through just experimenting, learning and figuring it out. Because I had a feeling, and and it wasn't because I was preparing, I just had a feeling that social media would be useful. Right. That was it. So anyway, then I've, I've been at Accenture for 2013 October to 2015 October. And I'm recognizing that now I'm not playing to my own passion. Everything that I'm teaching about living your passion, your purpose, your living what really matters to you, I'm not doing that myself. Right. Because I'm still talking about digital and technology when actually what I want to talk about is life and the mind and wisdom. So I quit my job, comfy corporate job, doing really well for myself. And I'm trying to get into media. And so I'm writing to every big media company with, before my videos and saying, please give me a job. Like, I'll come in at like a video journalist salary. I was looking at salaries that were like a quarter of what I made. I was like, I don't care about the money. I want to make videos and I want to spread a message. I'm getting rejection email after rejection email saying, Jay, you never studied media. Jay, you have no background. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting rejected by all the biggest companies. Business Insider, HuffPost, The Economist, Wired, you name it. I've got all the emails. And then I try and network with the editors of these magazines. So I find out where they are, I go to the events, I try and talk to them. And they're like to me, hey man, you're like 28 years old. Why do you wanna do this? You make more money right now, hang in the corporate world, do it as a hobby. I remember running after one of our biggest news anchors in England called Jon Snow. And he rides a bike around London, but he's like, he's huge. He's on Channel 4, one of the biggest yeah. broadcasters for us. <laughs> and so I run after him when he's on his bike and I'm like, John, please, please stop. And he stops. He's really kind. I say, John, can you please give me a job? I'll just, I don't even want to get paid. I'll just watch you. And I, because he creates these powerful documentaries. He's interviewed the best of the best, like Mandela and all this stuff, life-changing conversations. And he goes to me, he gives me a card and he goes, Jay, go get a master's in media and then come back. I'm thinking, oh, oh I'll spend come, two, three more years. Yeah, exactly. I've got to go back. Like, anyway, so I came to a point where I literally had no other option than to start a YouTube channel. And my honest limiting belief at the time was that doesn't work for anyone. And that's what I said to myself. I was like, oh, it's not going to work for anyone. But I literally had exhausted. I think it's Thomas Edison who says, when you feel you've exhausted every option, remember you haven't. Mm. And I'd come to that point where I felt I'd exhausted every option apart from starting a YouTube channel. So I launched the channel Jam 3rd, 2016, two years ago, and it's doing pretty well. And so I started to make videos because I felt that was the only way we could scale this message Mm. beyond corporates, beyond companies, to people in the world who can't pay for that coaching, who aren't part of this industry. When you grow up in that circumstance, you think everyone has that. But when you look around the world, most people do not work at a huge Fortune 500 company. Yeah. And I wanted to go to them and beyond. And I always, I always had this scale mind in my head. I've always been a big thinker and wanted scale. And when it comes to helping people, there's nothing more important than scale to me. Right. Like being able to impact everyone in the world, right? You can't, if you really want to help, you can't say I'm happy helping 10 people. No. You know, you want to help more people. That's why video is the most powerful platform to spread a message. Incredible. You're speaking in front of 100,000 people at an event exactly. isn't as powerful. It's, it's not. big. But it's limited still. Exactly. It's a lot of people. Yeah. But if you want to take it to as many as you can, I think video is the greatest yeah. option. At low cost yeah. to them and yourself. Like at completely, like at no expense to anyone. Yeah. You can change, you can have an impact on someone's life. Mm. And I didn't know that then, but I knew that video was the form. So I just tried. And that's when I started making videos because I felt anyone in the world with a phone, like more people have a phone than a toothbrush, right? right? So I was like, anyone who has a phone can watch this and it can impact them and get their journey going, whatever that is. And so that's why I started making videos. 
Wow. When did you realize it started to take off? So it was after a month, I was doing okay. I was getting like 10, 20, 30, 50K views on YouTube, which was pretty decent. And it was just all organic, me pushing it out, sharing my videos, again, tweeting it out to lots of editors and publishers saying, please feature my video. And then coming back even on Twitter and saying, not sure about this message, don't quite connect with it. Mm -hmm. We don't think it quite works. I got a lot of negative feedback as well. But the audience liked it. I was getting good feedback on YouTube, but from official people, I was getting quite, not negative, but not not great feedback. Uh-huh. But I kept going. I, I've always had this mantra that I always believe all you need is one person to say yes. And I still live like that. When I have an idea, yeah. I'm just like, I'm going to knock on every door and all I need is for one door to stay open. It doesn't matter how many that is. And so I started doing that. And somehow someone showed it to Ariana Huffington. She was at the World Economic Forum and someone showed it to her there. And then... I met with one of her team members who's now a really good friend of mine. He was like, a, he was the editor-in-chief of the Half Post at that time. And he loved my videos, he liked me, and then I pestered him for a month after I'd met him to actually get my videos on Half Post. Then Ariana called me, she said, I love your videos, we wanna feature them, just make a series for us mm. and, and we'll post them up. So I made a series of four videos. So this was about three months after I started on YouTube. So it's March 2016, March, April 2016. They launched my first video. It gets a million in a week views on Facebook on the HuffPost, which was great for them. They're like, let's try the second one. They launched the second one a week after, and that video is now on 40 million views and has another 120 million across Facebook on other channels. But that video did 40 million. It did 1 million in 24 hours and then like 12 million by the end of the week, and then 24 million in two weeks, and then 40 million overall. And then the third video did another 15 million, and the fourth video did another 20 million. And so that was the most views HuffPost has ever had on any of their series in their history. And then Ariana was just like, hey, do you wanna come over and and be a part of us? So that's when it really took off. When when Ariana spotted it, and her team spotted it, Danny Shea, one of my favorite people in the world who who really had faith in me and fought my battle, uh, when when I was just this guy making videos on YouTube, which I still still am, but he really saw that it had potential and Ariana, so them two were like the best and Danny's, Ariana's one of her favorite people. Mm. They made it happen. He invited me to New York to host a show on HuffPost Live, which was their partnership with Facebook Live. Yeah, yeah. And I had a show called Follow the Reader that I created and produced where I interviewed self-development experts. So I would have loved to have you on that show had I still been there. But we interviewed Deepak Chopra, Tim Ferriss, Gabby, uh, Dr. Shafali, Russell Simmons, et cetera. Shafali's great. Yeah, Shafali's awesome, yeah. She's really cool. So I got to meet all these incredible people and more on that show. And that's when it, so that was September 2016. That's when I came to New York. What are people not understanding about video? Okay. What are they not understanding about how powerful it is for their business their brand and ultimately their message to impact people. You mean people who are already doing it or people who don't get why video is important? Which side? Both. Both. You know, what, are so, they not, what are they not getting? Yeah. People that are doing it, maybe yeah. it's not working well for them. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. people that aren't doing it. Yeah. Let's start with the people that aren't doing it and then move to one. So the people that aren't doing it, it's always that same question. What's the ROI on social media? Right? What's the ROI? Now, the funny thing is, your business work and service, my business work and service literally lives off of social media. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously an ROI. But the problem is we live in a world where we want everything to be measurable. And there's a beautiful Einstein quote that says, not everything that counts can be counted 
and not everything that you can count counts, mm-hmm. right? And we live in this world where everything needs to be measured. But it's like life doesn't work like that. There's a load of adverts and billboards on the street that the biggest brands pay for that don't convert into direct sales. Do you think that Coca-Cola looks at the billboard out there and goes, how many people saw that advert today and how many people bought a Coca-Cola because of that advert? They don't have that number. It doesn't exist. And they're one of the biggest brands in the world, but they still do it. So social media and video is just a new billboard. Mm -hmm. And the biggest brands know that the more you see it, like, I mean, (laughs) this is funny. I saw this today. I saw a big billboard outside of my hotel that has all the Jenners and the Kardashians wearing their Calvins. Have you seen it? Right, I saw it straight away this morning. Then I saw it on Instagram and then I saw it everywhere. So already I've seen it in three places. Now I don't need women's Calvin underwear. But the point is that I've seen it in a million places. So anyone who's not using video hasn't understood that more people are gonna see video than anything else. And not just that, video is so much better than a billboard. You can say so much more. Right. So for me, it's just a lack of seeing opportunity. There's a, there's a great, I think this is a, a old tale, it's not true, but it's told that when Nike first went to India, they went there and it's not Nike, it's any, any sneaker brand, it's, it's, it's a nice story. And when they first went to India, they saw everyone was barefoot. <clears throat> So the first reporter came back and said, oh, there's no market there because no one wears trainers. And then the second reporter went, then he said, oh, no one wears shoes. And then he came back and says, we've got a huge market out there, right? And it's the way you see it, that someone saw no one wearing shoes as no market, but another person saw everyone not wearing shoes as a market. And that's what video is, that you can sit here and debate the ROI on video for as long as you want. But the truth is every major brand has invested in a front window that may not translate to direct sales or work or whatever it is, right. but it does. Do you think every brand should be using video? Every brand should be using video. And I what's think, the best way they should be using video? Yeah, should so it the, be like, just buy my product? No, and or the, should it be more telling a story and inspiring people? Yeah, so I don't like to advise and work with brands I believe are selling things that I don't believe are legitimate. So this advice that I'm giving is me saying the brands that I think are having a positive difference in the world. Mm. Or have a product that's good. Or a product that's good and helps people. Yeah, that helps people, yeah. My advice is that the story is one thing, but you really have to go into the heart of the emotion. What are people experiencing when they use your product? What experience are they having? How is it transforming their life? How is it making a difference? And building an experience and a story around that emotion rather than, hey, if you drink this, you're going to be really happy. And, you know, but it's like, well, where's your proof? right? How is this changing lives? I think people look at it, how is it changing your current day-to-day life? Mm -hmm. But they're not looking at how it changes lives in general. How can a very simple product actually make a huge difference in people's daily lives? So every company is trying to sell VR. So, So I recently made a video for a brand about VR, but I took a completely different spin on it. And they'd asked me to make a video about VR. And I said, well, I like VR, but that's boring. I don't want to make a video about VR. So my spin on it is what if VR was used to increase empathy in humanity? So what if a young child could put on VR goggles and live through the eyes of another young child who doesn't have what they have? Could that increase gratitude? Could that increase empathy? That's looking at how VR can change lives. That's not looking at, oh, VR is going to let us play more games and be in 3D environments. Like, who cares? And that's what really touches our hearts, right? It's like, how can this product, service, or tool change lives? So brands are not focused on that. Brands are focused too much on the 
transactional purpose as opposed to the transformational purpose. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've learned the hard way that constantly holding on to your emotions and repeatedly choosing to not talk about your feelings will only make you feel worse and worse. And up until about 10 or 11 years ago, I was afraid to talk about my trauma that I experienced. And I know we all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lewis today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash L-E-W-I-S. Of a product, service, or tool. Mm. So I'm requesting brands switch away from transactional thinking to transformational thinking. How can that technology service or tool transform people's lives, not just get you another transaction? Yeah. And and people need to move away from that direct selling, that direct kind of kind of cheesy salesy stuff that that doesn't work on any of us, and neither does it change lives. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? Of course. Yeah. yeah. So it's really learning how to master telling a better story. Storytelling. Yeah. It's all storytelling and creating experiences. How can you create an experience that really touches on human emotions? So I was talking to you the other day that the main emotions are adventure, emotion, positive or negative, like controversy, debate. You've got comedy. You've got inspire or motivate. And you've got surprise. Those are the five key emotions that all of us are triggered by. So brands need to figure out which of those fit their brand and are aligned with their ethos. Mm. And it has to be content-led. Too many people are making bad content and expecting good marketing to sell it. And that's what I see everyone interested in. Every brand, influencer, expert, author comes to me and says, Jay, I want to sell this. What tools do I need? What techniques do I need? What marketing do I need? And I'm like, no, but the content doesn't work. So you can put a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million dollars behind a bad advert or a bad piece of content, Mm. and it won't get anywhere. Or you can have an amazing piece of content, and you can just touch a few distribution channels, and it will have millions of views. And so too many people are not content-focused, they're marketing-focused. And that's where people are, that gap is ruining brands. Right. Tell better stories, give more value. Yeah. Tell better stories, give more value, craft content that makes people understand what you're creating, how you're making a difference in someone's life mm-hmm. and why you're doing it. What's the thing that makes someone want to share it and leave a comment? What Absolutely. Is, what is that main thing that someone watches, keeps them watching the whole time and then says, I have to share this? So first thing is people need to see themselves in the situation. They need to be able to see themselves in the story you're creating. If they can't identify with a the character, they'll switch off. Why is it that Marvel and DC have so many different characters? Because we can all connect with one of their origin stories, Mm -hmm. whichever one it is. Now, I know a lot of people want to be Wolverine, but Mm -hmm. the point is there's multiple, right? Everyone has a favorite X-Men. Everyone has a favorite Justice League Mm -hmm. character because we all identify with a different origin story. 
So the more deeply you understand your origin story of your customer or client or audience, the more deeply you can create a story around it. So people have to be able to see themselves in it. That's the first thing to keep them watching, to even get them to watch in the first place. The way you keep them watching is to create a scenario where there will be a surprise or a reveal at the end. Who doesn't want to know how a magic trick is done? Right. Who doesn't want to know how something finishes? There's a beautiful movie called The Prestige by Christopher Nolan. I don't know if you've seen it. It's my favorite movie of all time. Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, directed and produced by Christopher Nolan. And he talks about how every magic trick has three elements. Yeah. And the third element is called The Prestige which is the reveal, yes. where you're surprised, where you see what you didn't think was going to happen. Video has to have that. Video has to have a message, a link, a surprise at the end that delights people, that has taken them on a surprising journey or a different turn. And then finally, what a video needs for someone to share it after that is you need to help them experience that emotion at the deepest level, where they feel compelled to want to tag their friend. Now you can do this through language, you can do it through crafting. So title of a video, these are the, these are the more logistical aspects. But you, again, you can have rubbish content and put a good title, it won't work. But titling, the caption, all of this stuff is gonna impact the audience. Right. So things that help people watch and share immediately. So I have a video called Before You Break Up, Watch This. Right, we've released it just before summer because a lot of people break up just before summer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to try and see if we, people didn't have to break up before summer because it hurts a lot of people. So I made a video called Before You Break Up, Watch This. But the Watch This makes you want to watch it now. It makes it instant, it makes it current, it makes it relevant. And the Before You Break Up is pulling in on an emotion mm. that most people don't want to go through. How many people want to break up? Right? Most people don't want to break up. Right. So we're tapping into an emotion. And then I'm presenting a video that isn't lying, isn't manipulating. I'm sharing how so many of us are in love, but not together. And so many of us are together, but not in love. And helping, realize, helping people reflect and realize where are they at on that scale. So I'm also offering a solution through the video. And, and that video is of course completely free, it's completely there, but people are sharing it because they realize the value in the message. Mm. I think too many people are not message-led, they're like cool effects-led or cool text-led. Yeah. But it has to be message-led, like what are you really sharing? And how are you taxing your brain mm. to craft a message without just saying it? I could just say to you, Lewis, I think you need to use more video, right? Or I could do what we've just talked about, which is share with you why you should use more video. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we all know that we're more compelled when someone talks about the why, as Simon Sinek says. Mm -hmm. like, why do you use video? Right. You know, what's the message that you're crafting? Right. Wow. Yeah. If you were starting over again, you, didn't, you just came out of the monk world, <laughs> would you go right to video again? Oh, no, you know what? My experience at Accenture was hugely helpful. It also gave me time to kind of Transition, observe yeah. and transition. I think if I went straight to video, I'm not sure because first of all at Accenture I learned social media. Second of all at Accenture I understood corporate culture properly again, which was very useful. Thirdly, I made a bunch of great friends that I'm, I'm in contact now that I love. Yeah. And I have a great relationship with the company and they're one of my biggest clients. Oh, that's good. So it's like there's nothing that could have been done differently. But did I know that then? No. So you can't connect the dots moving forwards. You only can when you look back yeah, at Steve right. Jobs. And I feel like that with Accenture, that I wouldn't change it because the amount I gained there, 
in the two to three years that I was there, two years that I was there, mm-hmm. is priceless, you know, on so many levels. Wow, uh, that's yeah. cool, man. Yeah. What's something that most people don't know about you that you're really proud of? Oof, what am I, what people don't know about me that I'm really proud of, wow. I don't think a lot of people know that I meditate two hours a day, which I'm not proud of in the, oh, look how good I am sense, but I'm proud that I've been able to maintain that since living it's as a tough. Yeah. It's really tough. I went yeah. to India a year, a little over a year ago. Yeah, yeah, I want to hear about it. For two weeks and practice all day for yeah. two weeks, essentially. Until we'd stop at like, I don't know, nine o'clock <laughs> at night or whatever. But, and then sometimes we do like 2 a.m. meditations yeah. to kind of be in this space of like, am I asleep? Am I awake? To yes. see what was possible for the mind then. Yeah. So it was two weeks. And for about six to eight months, I was very consistent afterwards. Yes. And since then, amazing. I... I Sometimes I am, sometimes not. Sometimes, but you I'm felt you felt compelled to carry it on. It unbelievable. Yeah, like I wanted it, and when I was doing it consistently, it was profound. Right? Yeah, no, I was still not perfect and had no, my no, flaws, but it was so much more powerful for me. And I haven't been as consistent, so it's amazing that you have been. I mean, if you do it for three years every single day, yeah. for four to eight hours a day, you should be able to keep it for hopefully like ten years. I did it for two weeks. It's amazing. And kept it for like seven months or something. So yeah, um, that's great. But it's definitely, I feel much clearer when I'm mm. meditating, mm. even for fifteen minutes. Yeah, Completely. you know, I don't know if I could do two hours every day like <laughs> you, but fifteen minutes a day, yeah, is powerful. Absolutely, just to reconnect to the intention, right, and to get rid of the weeds. Exactly. So most people don't know that. I think people think that I, like you did as well when we met, that people think I make videos and I teach. But for me, my personal practice is such a big part of grounding and who I am that I don't feel proud. Like, oh, look how good I can do two hours. That's when when I go live with the monks again. I'm like, oh, I'm only at two hours. You know, it's like, <laughs> like it's not a big achievement. And and it's also about the depth of the two hours. Yeah. Anyone can meditate for two hours. But it's like, what's the depth? It's like I go to the gym for two hours and do nothing, right? right Listen right, to music right. all day. Like, but those people are going to the gym and really going deep. So those meditation is just a gym for the mind. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Right. It's a gym for the mind. And your wife supports the two hours in the morning and the lifestyle? Yeah, so my wife, I actually met her while teaching her meditation wow. and philosophy. So when I left being a monk, she used to come to my classes. I met her before that. I'd actually met her before I became a monk, but we didn't. We weren't friends. We didn't really know each other. I knew of her and I'd seen her around. But then after I left, she used to come to my classes and I used to teach meditation and philosophy. And and I have to be honest and say, she's a better meditator than me now. No way. Yeah, she's way better than possible? me. Because she's so genuinely pure. Like she's a sincere soul who's more monk than I'll ever be. Really? You know, yeah, she just has it naturally inherently within her. So she's now wakes up earlier than I do. Yeah, she wakes up earlier than I do. She meditates better than I do. She reminds me to meditate. She's the one who's like always questioning my intention and purity level, not in a negative way, in a good way, where I feel accountable to someone who's who's really grounding me and make me value what I have and what I've learned. And it's not just because she's newer to it, because now she's been meditating for around four or five years. So she's been doing it for a long amount of time, for two hours a day as well. So the great thing is I wake up and I don't feel good at all because she's just finished two hours and I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta start. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, she supports it because she's better than me at it. This is gonna be my my ego moment. I'm gonna have it where, where you feel like I'm a good teacher, right? If the student's, <laughs> better, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. if the student's better than the teacher, then, well. I, then I must be pretty good. So, <laughs> but no, she's, yeah, she's a better meditator than is me. Is there anything you do during during your day that you're not proud of? 
Yeah, loads. I, I'm besides a couple of moments or of oh, am I chasing this for the money for like a moment or something? No, you know, I have my moments where I'll snap at my wife or I'll, I'll be, you know, I, I won't communicate with her in the most compassionate, beautiful way that I want to, and I'm busy and I'm carrying all this stuff, and that release happens, and and I never feel proud of that. I always end up feeling bad about it because I'm like, here's this beautiful, amazing person. Mm who is supporting me in every way possible. And here I am being ungrateful, not following my own advice, not communicating with empathy and love, and falling prey to the stress that doesn't even matter that much anymore. So yeah, that's something that I really, really am not happy about when I do that. If I snap at her or I don't give her the, the right energy or I'm not connecting with her mm. with the right language and the right tone and the right mood, because I'm kind of trying to focus or, yeah, yeah. and I'm quite an extremist. I like to get lost in creative worlds. So when I need that, I need like complete silence. I need like nothing. Yeah, literally. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's like, I'm trying to write a script for another viral, you know, for another video. And she's asking me what I want for dinner or something, which is like her trying to serve me. And I'm just like, no, just, I, I need, you know, and I hate that about myself. Like I don't like it when I'm like that way mm -hmm. because it's, it's ungrateful. So yeah, that definitely is something I need to change and I'm working on it. Mm. Is there anything that you're ashamed of that you've done in your life? Oh, loads of stuff. And I feel it back. Karma's real, right? Like, I used to be a really stupid kid. So when, between 14 and 18, I experimented with all the worst stuff. I was never a saint. I was never meant to be a monk. I just got lucky I met the right people. I used to do stupid stuff. We used to, we used to mess around with drugs. We used to steal. We used to hotwire cars. We used to... All the stuff that you would never be proud of. And we did it from 14 to 18. And now I have the worst car karma in the world, right? Like, and that's not just for the play on words. Like, I literally have the worst car karma. I always get parking tickets. Always something goes wrong with it. I don't have a car in New York now, but every time I'm in London and I rent a car, something will go wrong with it. And I realize I'm just getting back all the pain I caused to people from whatever I did to their car when I was 14 to 18 whether we stole it, whether we hotwired it, whether we scratched the car, whatever it was, all the stupid stuff that I did. I'm just so ashamed of because, but I was just, I was that kid who was just looking for a, I was looking for a thrill in life. And I was looking for something in life that had more meaning than just being someone who did well at school or, you know, that just wasn't enough. Like that can't be life. Right. But unfortunately I went down the wrong, you know, I was suspended from school three times mm. for everything from violence to stealing to, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, so I'm super ashamed of that. It's the best grounding thing because I look back and I go, no matter what anyone says about me today or how I think I've grown today, I've got all these anchors that humble me sure. and remind me of who I was mm. and could have ended up as if I didn't meet these great people. Right. I'm hugely ashamed of how many bad relationships I had, how many girls' hearts I broke, mm. people that I, I wouldn't say I, I never, I never cheated on anyone. So that was, that's kind of like my, my like holding up my card and going, I never cheated. But the kind of pain that I caused anyone through leading them on the wrong path or breaking up with them when they thought there was a future or all that mm. stuff, like, my favorite thing is finding out their next girlfriend got married and has a baby. Like when I find that out, it's I happy, feel so happy. Like, yeah, just yeah. Like, oh, please forgive me. You know, like <laughs> yes, like you know, I didn't ruin your life, and and that 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 I'm super ashamed of. And those are my biggest grounding moments because before I became a monk, that's what I was like, and it was me failing people rather than the relationship failing. I was getting lost too quickly in relationships, not treating people properly, and yeah, that stuff. I'm like, mm. like you know, that that stuff makes me grounded all the time. Yeah. 
and I'm reminded of how low I can go yeah. and have gone. Mm-hmm. And, and so why to you nev- need to stay consistent with y- the practice. Exactly, and, yeah. and never to buy into your own hype. Right. I always, just don't buy into it. Like, yes, it's beautiful to be able to live a life now where I don't, I'm not like that, and I don't feel like that anymore. But it can happen to any of us. Anyone can fall at any moment, and I think the moment you think you can't fall. I was talking about this with someone the other day. Uh, Benjamin Franklin's 13 precepts. He had 13 things he wanted to achieve by the time he died. It includes things like integrity, honesty, principles of that sort, yeah. values, deep core values. And at the end of his life, he was asked, which one did you not accomplish out of the 13? And he said it was the 13th one. And the 13th one is humility. And I give that example because if he felt he'd achieved humility, then he would lose all humility in that one statement. Mm. He, you can't be humble if you say, oh, well, I'm humble. You know, If you feel humble, then you can't be humble. That's what I feel about if you feel safe, that's when you're at your most vulnerable, when you feel you're infallible, when you feel that there's no moment where you could ever fall, that's when you're at your worst moment. And, and I think too often when you do good, you feel good, you live good, you can get to a point where you're like, well, I got this. And, and I think that's where most of us fall and fail. Ryan Holiday, I know, was on your show, Ego's the Enemy. It's a beautiful book. I think it's a great book. And that's what I mean, that ego becomes the enemy even when you start living the most pure, well-intentioned life. Like that's the yeah, last, yeah. you know, that's the last step of ego and the ego is just like ready. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, that self-reflection, that grounding, that meditation, remembering, you know, there, I think it's, there's always... As a monk, we were taught two things to remember, two things to forget. Always remember the bad you've done to others and remember the good others have done for you. Right? Always remember the bad you've done to others and the good others have done to you. When you remember the bad you've done to others, you'll always feel grounded, you'll always feel humbled. You never let your ego get over you. And when you remember the good others have done for you, you feel grateful. Right. Two things to forget, forget the good you've done for others. If you get fixated and fascinated by that too long, your ego is going to grow. And forget the bad others have done to you. That doesn't mean you have to be their best friend again, but to forget because otherwise that's just going to drain your energy forever. And those two points have really stayed with me because they both stop you from ego and they increase gratitude. Yeah. And they keep you humble and grounded. And so I aspire for that. That's powerful, yeah. Yeah. Final few questions for you. Go for it. I'm loving this. This one's called The Three Truths. Okay. From all the things you've learned in your life, yeah. from monk life to stealing cars to everything else, yeah, yeah, breaking yeah. hearts before you were a monk, all those yeah. things, to what you've learned now, yeah. uh, if this was the last day for you, mm. many years from now, you've created every video you want, you've told every story, shared every parable, you've shared every <laughs> lesson, you've written all the books you want to do, anything you want to do, you've done. Yeah. Those 13 things that you want, they've yeah. happened. Right. But for whatever reason, they're all erased. Everything is gone from the internet, the world, print, it's all gone. Mm. Your words of wisdom. Okay. Uh, but you had a piece nice of paper, question. a piece of paper and a pen. Yeah. And this would last for 5,000 years. <laughs> the three things that you wrote down would last for the next 5,000 years, but that's all that would last. Yeah. Yeah. What would be your three truths or three lessons? Your consciousness and the soul, not the body. That would be the number one thing. Your consciousness. You're not this physical, mental, emotional being. You're a spiritual being in a human experience. You're not a human in having a spiritual experience. That would be the first thing that would be on. The moment we realize that, you cut through so much nonsense in your life. So that would be number one. It's one of the biggest principles in the Bhagavad Gita. The second principle would be the second principle that's huge in the Bhagavad Gita is 
play to your own element. Don't try and perform someone else's expertly. So in modern terminology, or how would I say that is, Steve Jobs, don't waste your time trying to live someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma. Focus in on your own strengths, your own element, what you have to offer. Don't get lost in trying to become like someone else or mm -hmm. pretend to be someone else. There's a beautiful, one of my favorite quotes by Einstein and then Steve Jobs again. Einstein said, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will spend its whole life believing that it's stupid. And too many of us are fish trying to climb a tree. Too many of us are monkeys being taught how to swim. Too many of us are lions being taught to live like cats. We're not getting to live in our element. So my second piece of advice is live in that element that you've naturally been given. Don't try adopt another. You know, we've all got a special genius inside of us. It was Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, this conversation. Steve Wozniak looked, Steve Wozniak, for those who don't know, is the tech guy behind Apple. He practically invented the technology and the software and everything. So Steve Wozniak looked at Steve Jobs and he says, this is in Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. Steve Wozniak, Wozniak looks at Steve Jobs and he says, what do you even do? He said, you're not a coder, you're not a designer, you're not a marketer, and you're not an engineer. What do you even do? Imagine challenging Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs replies, he says, he says, musicians play their instruments, I play the orchestra. That is the most deep understanding of one's role in life and not getting lost in other people's identities and perceptions of you. Steve Jobs knew that he wasn't a marketer, he wasn't an engineer, he wasn't a coder, so he hired all of those. But he played the orchestra, he brought it all together. And that's when you, when you find confidence in your own role, you won't be envious of anyone else's. Mm -hmm. So that's the second one. I don't know how big this piece of paper is, but yeah. anyway. And the, and the third one is lead with service. Like just serve. Try and use the understanding of the first and the second to make a difference. If you're a musician, serve. If you're a coder, serve. If you're a orchestra leader, serve. If you're a entrepreneur, serve. Like make your life about service and helping other people, not just to feel good, but make that the reason why you do what you do. Mm. Don't make that what happens because you have money. Make that the reason you do what you do. Yeah. And if people start with service, then you'll experience love, then you'll experience compassion, then you'll experience gratitude. Service is, Gandhi said it, you find yourself when you lose yourself in the service of others. And that's the deepest level of self-actualization. So know that you're the soul and the consciousness, not the body. Know that you have a unique genius and don't settle for any less. And use both of those to serve other people as the reason for the first two. Mm. That would be my three. Those are great. I Thank love you. those. I love those. They're from the Vedas. They're not mine. Yeah. yeah. I like them though. Yeah. It's, you told them well. You Thank use good you. analogies to tell Thank them well. You. How can we connect with you the most? Where do you spend the most time online or... How can we support you? You're Jay Shetty on social media. Yeah, Jay Shetty on social media. Facebook's the place where I am most in terms of content, but Instagram and YouTube, any of those three are perfect places to find me in my content. My content generally sits across three areas, relationships, passion, purpose, success and greatness. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things I'm most fascinated by. Right. So whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're working a corporate job, Whatever you're doing, wherever you are in the world, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a very global audience. Mm -hmm. So I'm very grateful that got everyone from Australia to South Africa to South America to India to China. So wherever you are in the world, the US, UK, Europe, 
please come and find me on any of those three channels that work for you. And there's always like two to three new videos a week. So. That's great. Yeah. Two to three a week. Yeah. Okay. Make sure you guys check them out. Follow them, <laughs> check them out there. We're gonna have a, we're gonna make sure he has a book out soon too. Yes. We're gonna make sure that happens <laughs> soon. So stay tuned for that in the future. Before I ask the final question, I want to oh. acknowledge you for a moment, Jay, for your ability to really dive into a, a place of letting go of everything and then coming out the other side to be of service. I think you went through uh, you know, a lot growing up where you realized it wasn't the life you wanted. Then you saw you had the uh, realization that you wanted to do something greater than just steal cars or chase girls or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And you learn some important principles that now you're able to simplify and share with the world. So the things that you talked about, your three truths, you've gone through the work, you've given up a lot so that you can give a lot to so many people. So I want to acknowledge you for showing up beautifully, man. You've got a huge heart of gold and your discipline, your patience with people who may, maybe don't think the way that you do to just love and give is really powerful and inspiring. So I want to acknowledge you for that, man. Thank you, man. It's a reflection of you. I definitely feel a lot of love for you. And I genuinely feel that we were connected beautifully last year. Yeah, it was fun. And, and I feel you're one of the most genuine people I've met in a long, long time. Thanks, man. And so I feel really, really touched to even know you, man. Cool, so man. the gratitude is mutual. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank Appreciate you. it. Final question, what's your definition of greatness? Ooh. Oh, God, leave that one till the end. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I, I have a definition of greatness. You sparked something. So I said this in a class as a monk eight years ago. No, no, that wouldn't be true. Six years ago. I said this in a class. It came out spontaneously since then. I've repeated it. So I said that it's easy to be great, to be personally great, to do something big yourself, build a big business, have a good relationship, have a nice house, have a nice car. It's easy to be great. It's harder to be great and teach others to be great, mm. to actually then go a step further and say, I'm going to help other people be great. That's greater. It's easy to be great. It's harder to be great and teach others to be great. It's even harder to be great, teach others to be great, and then teach them to be great. Mm. And then they can teach others and pass it on to be great. But real greatness is when you're great yourself, when you teach others to be great, when they learn how to teach others to be great, but you don't feel that you're great at all. Mm. That's my definition of greatness. It's where you start and come back to humility and insignificance and you embrace your insignificance. That's the greatest thing in the world. The most powerful, most admirable, most captivating quality in a human is when they've achieved everything that looks great in every arena, but they don't consider themselves great. That, that's my definition of greatness. Mm. Jay Shetty, thank you, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. Beautiful. There you have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share the message out to your friends, to the world on the social media. All you need to do is post this link, lewishouse.com slash six. Share it out to your friends. Take a screenshot of this podcast on your phone and tag me on Instagram at Lewis Howes. Make sure to tag at Jay Shetty as well. Connect with us both over on Instagram story and let us know what you think. I try to respond to as many people as I can there. So post it there, put your feedback, and we'll try to get back to you. 
Again, the full video and show notes is over there as well. So make sure to share this with your friends. Super pumped to get this out there in the world. We're all about making ancient wisdom go viral. Again, we have some big interviews coming up. Super excited about what we have coming up next, guys. Make sure to subscribe if this is your first time here. And every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we bring you inspiration, information, and inspiring interviews to help you unlock your inner greatness. I hope you enjoyed this one with Jay Shetty. And as Joseph Wong said, influence is our inner ability to lift people up to our perspective. I love you, and you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. We'll be right back.